Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and on this episode of Press Advance, we're talking to a Republican candidate for president. Francis Suarez is the mayor of Miami, a proud Cuban-American, a proponent of new technologies. He probably veers towards more of the libertarian viewpoint on many issues, and he's on the younger end of the spectrum of candidates. He is a working mayor, meaning that his time as mayor is part-time. He also holds a job working as a lawyer, and he served as president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Suarez launched his bid to run for president with a video of him literally running in a tight shirt. I have always been a runner. It's the best place to charge my body and clear my mind. We lived right here in Miami. This is where my parents began their American dream. Mayor Francis Suarez, welcome to Press Advance. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Johanna, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I have to admit to something to you to start, which is I watched your video uh, launching your run, running on News Nation, and I called you Mayor Abs. (laughs) You are are definitely on the campaign trail running, but you are fit and you have a young family. Tell me about Gloria, your wife. We're coming up on our 16 year anniversary um, in the next few days. Yes, and she is amazing. Um, I, you know, she I, I couldn't do this without her. Obviously, she's the mother of our two children. Uh, we have a, a little a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. And, you know, she is uh, sort of the mama bear that protects her her little cubs. And it's it's listen, it's it's been a wonderful experience uh, to go through life with her. Um, the ups and downs of uh, public service is not easy. You're uh, under heavy scrutiny. You're constantly being second-guessed and questioned on your decisions, on your morals, on your ethics. Uh, we live in a world where nothing is taken for granted. And, you know, it, it's it's exhausting at times. And having a good support system at home is a, a tremendous blessing. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine trying to do this without it. I really can't. No. And you're right. It's important to have your own house in order running for president. You have a lot of people running for president from your state. You worked with Governor DeSantis as mayor. Yeah. So I was elected mayor in 2017. He was elected governor in 2000 and I think uh, 18. So we've overlapped uh, a few years. Yes. So what's it like working with him and why did you decide to run against him? Well, I didn't decide to run against him. You know, I decided to run for president uh, and I decided to run for president because I felt that I had the unique a skill set, the unique background, and the unique vision uh, to take this country forward. That's why I'm running for president. Um, I don't think you run against anyone. I do think you analyze the field, right? And I do think you you look at, do you have something unique to offer, right? I, I think if you don't have anything unique to offer, then then frankly, you shouldn't run, right? I mean, w- w- you should support someone uh, else potentially. Uh, and, and, and being the only Hispanic, uh, being the only mayor, um, I think that's unique. Uh, I think that uh, gives people something to think about as they weigh their decisions. I think a mayoral personality is very different um, in terms of how we get things done. We don't really have time to blame other people for problems. We just solve problems. Uh, I was blessed to be elected by 85% and reelected by 80%. And one thing that I would say, and I think this is important for a presidential race as a Republican, is the year before I was elected, In 2016, Donald Trump lost Dade County to Hillary Clinton by 30 points. 
And the year after I was reelected in 22, I was reelected in 21, by about 80 percent. Both are Republican candidates, one Dade County by about 10 points. So that's a 40 point swing. And I think that's important because I think that demonstrates that my candidacy can pull from one of three groups that I think are essential to not only winning the 2024 presidential election, but to winning potentially a generation of future elections. And that's voters under 30, which uh, Joe Biden won by 26 points. That's Hispanics, which, as you know, constitute 20 percent of the country. I was looking at the registration numbers the other day. It's 11 percent of Democrats and 7 percent of Republicans. But you know, Johanna, that the last two elections were decided by less than 100,000 votes, each one in a few swing states. So if you pull from urban voters, which I've just demonstrated an ability to turn from Democrat to Republican, young voters and Hispanic voters from all three of those blocks, I mean, you could have a very, very large margin of victory. I'm not saying that you're going to win all three of those blocks, but if you do significantly better, you increase the probability of success enormously. On issues, you've been slightly at odds with some of the Republicans. Immigration being one, I mean, I think you and I probably agree that we don't have the workforce right now to support our retiring generation. And so we need pathways to legal immigration. Tell me, what do the other candidates and what does the Republican Party potentially have wrong on immigration? I'm not sure that anyone has articulated, frankly, from either party, a very coherent solution to the immigration problem that is multi-decade and multi-administration, right, in fairness. Uh, and, and I take a look at it from a very comprehensive perspective. First, most people agree, even Democrats, uh, like Democrat mayors, that the border is a mess, right? The, the, the border is a human trafficking crisis, and it's also a, an entry point for fentanyl, which is killing, you know, 80 to 90,000 Americans. That's the equivalent of a 747 crashing every single day. You know, we saw the national tragedy of, of five people dying in a submersible um, just recently. If a 747 were to crash and we thought there was a problem with 747s, we would literally stop everything and solve that problem. And I think that's sort of where the mayoral personality comes in and says, hey, there's a problem. We've got to fix it. Let's depoliticize it. Let's just fix it. Let's stop all this inflow uh, that is hurting our country. That's number one. But most people agree on that. Number two, we've got to look at what is creating the pressure. Right. So what's creating the pressure from my perspective before it used to be, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, you know, Venezuela and Haiti at some level. Right. Uh, now you're looking at, in my opinion, socialist governments gaining steam in our hemisphere. Right. Like Mexico is left of center uh, Brazil, Colombia. Colombia was such an interesting election. And I don't understand exactly what our path with Colombia is, because, I mean, he was a Hugo Chavez apologist. I met Hugo Chavez at the Summit of Americas. He was not a leader that was opening up opportunities for his people. Well, and then what happens is that poverty, right? Socialism delivers poverty. So that poverty uh, creates pressure because, look, you got to think, what is it going to take all of us as Americans to just think, put this in your mind, because this is a hard thing for us to understand. What would it take for us, how, the level of desperation to pick up everything that we own tomorrow and say, for example, as a Cuban, I'm going to get in this makeshift raft and I'm going to go 90 miles in shark infested water where I don't know where the currents or the wind is going to take me. And I'm going to try to make it to freedom. It is a, it's an act of desperation that is so uh, unfathomable to many of us. Right. So I think part of it is taking the, the trillion dollars in wealth that we give to China on an annual basis, 
right, in the form of a, a trade deficit and the stealing of RIP, start nearshoring and friendshoring uh, and, and homeshoring a lot of our production, right, in terms of our supply chain, which we saw during COVID was incredibly vulnerable to an increasingly hostile country in China, right? China went from being our productive arm to now we have to worry about what they're going to do with Taiwan. And we have to worry about them, you know, setting up a military training base in our own hemisphere in Cuba, 90 miles away. But what levers can you pull to make that transition for the private sector? Yeah, look, I think, you know, hopefully some of it happens naturally, right, in terms of people understanding that, you know, our supply chain is vulnerable. Uh, I think we have to look at everything, I mean, including uh, potentially tax incentives, whatever it takes to get people to nearshore. It's happening in the microchips at some level organically. Uh, we're seeing what happens in Ohio and in Arizona with the Taiwan manufacturing company of uh, microchips that's building plants in the United States. But it has to continue to accelerate. It has to happen faster. I think that's part of it. And then I think you've got to deal with, like you said, and, and I'm sorry to make it number three, but, but it was really number one, which is legal immigration, right? How do you right-size legal immigration? And I think it has to be pegged to objective metrics like unemployment, as you mentioned, uh, the need for skilled and unskilled workers, and also the declining birth rate. You hit the major points, right? And it should be objective. It shouldn't be subjective because when you make it objective, it can ebb and flow uh, based on objective metrics. So that might mean that we need two or three X the, the amount of legal immigration than what we have right now. The issue is we want them playing on the same playing field. So we've got to right-size legal immigration. And then the last part, which is probably the hardest part, is what do we do with the undocumented illegal immigrants that we have already in this country? And I think I think the key there is first, we all recognize that there is no logistical way to move them out of the country, right? So they're here. As a Hispanic Republican president, I'd be in a unique uh, situation to negotiate with Congress uh, on a solution, right? Uh, whatever that solution looks like. Uh, I, I think you demystify, when you have a Hispanic Republican president, you sort of demystify the fear that at, if at some point these illegal Im immigrants or undocumented become voters, that they're all going to be Democrats, right? You know, having a Hispanic Republican president sort of breaks through that concern. And so I think that that does change the dynamic at some level. But I also think you have to respect people who have been in line, who have followed the process, done it right, and I think there's a concern, you know, for many Republicans that, you know, we're a law abiding country. We don't want to incentivize people who don't follow the law. DeSantis just passed a bill in Florida that changes uh, the work requirements for businesses, correct? What are you seeing there with those who are undocumented? I know there were some worries in Florida if you'd have enough population just to staff jobs. So what I'm hearing anecdotally because um, I, I don't have any data yet. But what I'm hearing anecdotally is that it's hurting uh, construction, the construction industry, it's hurting uh, small businesses, um, people who want to comply with the law, who obviously feel uh, they should comply with the law. And look, they should be complying with the federal law to begin with. But I think some of the concerns that people have sometimes is that they feel that the governor, uh, in an effort to build a presidential campaign, uh, may be doing things that hurt businesses in his own state. And I think that uh, we saw that with with the criticism over Disney, right? Uh, you know, he had an issue that I think was a winning issue for most people, which is that school systems shouldn't teach sexuality to minors, to small kids, right? To kids that are K through third grade. And then it sort of metamorphosized into sort of a personal battle where there was allegations that they were going to put prisons next to Disney, that they were going to take, take away their tax exempt status. And I think that 
you know, when you when you consider uh, someone who hasn't spent, I don't, I don't know if he spent the governor spent any time in the private sector. I'm not sure if he's ever worked in the private sector. Um, and, and I think that, by the way, that's a criticism of Joe Biden, right? People criticize Biden and they say, hey, he's been a lifelong politician, uh, forty years, uh, never spent much significant time in the private sector. And when you don't spend significant time in the private sector, you are disconnected right. from the engine of our country. Not the engine okay. of our country is not government, right? Government is not the one that's supposed to tell us what to do. It's not the one that's supposed to be, uh, for, by the way, on either side, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, shouldn't be telling us what to do. And I think, you know, it should be the private sector that demonstrates and that and that provides jobs and opportunity, which is what we've done in Miami, by the way. What I've done in Miami is I've, I've reduced taxes, uh, gotten government out of the way. Uh, reduce regulation. I just did something for for schools where we made it uh, as of right in a zoning classification. If you want to build a school, you don't even have to come and ask for permission. You can just build the school. So we've deregulated. Public or private schools? It could be for either, frankly. But uh, but oftentimes for charter schools, because what happens is, you know, the public school system has uh, their own set of rules on how they acquire property. And they think they're their own zoning entity. But for private charter schools, because we want to increase opportunity for people, right? We want to deregulate it so that it's easier. And, and, and we can create more capacity. We've seen this a lot in California and Los Angeles. And I'm from, originally from Galesburg, Illinois, so very far away from any charter school. Um, but we've seen in Los Angeles that they've tried to open up more options. But when there's no regulation, there have been problems with kids who have IEPs, any special needs. How are you protecting against you know any of the abuses of the system? And really, an overall on regulatory, what is the role in government? Are you more libertarian? Or what's your belief there? I'm very libertarian when it comes to, you know, sort of the rule of, the role of regulation. Um, I try to, because, and, and you have to understand, my parents were exiled from a socialist communist country. So this is a country where a leader said, give me all of your property, give me all of your businesses, and we'll make everybody equal. And he did. He made everybody equally poor and equally miserable. So for me, this concept of government as the solver of all problems, government as the intervener of all disputes, it just does not resonate with me. So uh, for us, it's been, you know, let government do the, the things that it does in its competency um, and then let the private sector do the rest. And as a leader, I want to run the corporation well, which we've done when I when I first got the city, uh, we were on the verge of bankruptcy um, in 2009 as a councilman. Uh, we cut uh, expenses. By the way, I'm the only candidate in the entire field, and you can Google this, look it up, that has actually cut a public sector budget. When I go to all of these forums, I tell people, find another candidate that has cut a public sector budget by 20%, which, by the way, is exactly what we need to do in the federal government. So that's number one. It was a turnaround job for me. What did you cut? We cut salaries and we cut pension benefits um, for our employees. And it was tough. It wasn't easy. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was easy or fun, but it, it was necessary. And our employees, who at the time obviously were very upset, very angry, understandably, um, realized over time, now we grew 12% last year. So we have the lowest tax rate in history, and we grew uh, four times more than the state of Florida. Well, you raised so many different questions for me because, so cryptocurrency is another one that you've been a big proponent of cryptocurrency. At uh, the time where FTX was acquiring the naming rights, the stadium, you were on board. You launched Miami Coin that's now shuttered. There's vulnerabilities with new technologies for individuals. With this cryptocurrency, do you have any regrets on that? And what role do you think the government should play in regulating cryptocurrency? I have absolutely no regret. 
whatsoever because, uh, first of all, the, the naming rights deal was with Miami-Dade County, not the city of Miami. And, the, and Miami-Dade County is probably the only entity that actually made money with FTX. Everybody else lost money. Um, they didn't get the full value of what they were supposed to get, but they actually didn't lose any money. In the case of, of Miami Coin and, and other cryptocurrencies, I liken that to like Netscape and Napster, if you remember. I don't oh, know if I you do. remember Netscape. So those are both names that for us in our age group, we remember them, right? Those were the the, the, the precursor to uh, Safari and to Google, right? And the precursors to Apple Music and Spotify, right? So those companies didn't survive, but their concepts are defining who we are today. So I think when you look at how do you create an ecosystem, and I think this is important for a president, a president is going to have to build an economy based on the opportunities of today and tomorrow. And those are increasingly digital. So whether a specific company survives or fails for me is not particularly important. What's particularly important is how does the technology change the world, right? And when you look at virtual reality, artificial intelligence, the space race, uh, crypto, all of these technologies, it's, it is without a doubt for me, with small kids, uh, well, my daughter, when she was two, used to take a pass, uh, a selfie with her pacifier, right? So it's, for me, there's no doubt that these technologies are revolutionizing the world. And in the case of crypto, I mean, we can have a long discussion about it, but but you're going to have fractionalized ownership of debt and equity, which is going to create prosperity as opposed to poverty, which is what we're seeing right now with the financial system, where you have increased, you know, inflation is the number one issue in America, high interest rates. If you want to be a home buyer, you want to buy a home, it's 7% right now to buy a home so people can't afford uh, to live. Well, and I understand that Florida has high inflation, like higher than some other states. Why is that? Well, we have high demand, right? I mean, I think what happens is you have a base rate of inflation that's that's already high, right? In terms of, uh, like I told you, this out of whack federal government spending. And then you have the Fed trying to counteract that government spending by increasing interest rates. So you have the worst of both worlds. In the case of Florida, because of our tax differential, um, between us and other states like New York and Illinois and California, everybody wants to come here. And by the way, everybody wants to come here from South America. We talked about the phenomenon of all these countries that are going socialist, that are putting a lot of pressure on the U.S. And then you talk about the Middle East. We're getting a tremendous amount of interest from the Middle East uh, right now. We have direct flights to, to Doha. We have direct flights to uh, Abu Dhabi and, and, uh, and to Qatar. Uh, and we have direct flights to uh, Tel Aviv. So we're getting a tremendous amount of of interest from the Middle East. What's your view on Donald Trump's wall? Look, I think we have to get control of the border. Uh, you know, th- you've got six to seven million illegal, uh, undocumented people that have entered this country since Biden took over. That's created a crisis across the country. I was in New Hampshire last week as well, and they're talking about the fentanyl crisis, the homeless crisis, uh, which is driven in part by uh, mental health issues and substance abuse issues, right? That fentanyl is coming in oftentimes through our southern border. So we have to get control of the southern border. Um, you know, I, and so how that happens, uh, whether it's a wall, whether it's technology, um, whatever it is, it, it has to happen. I, I'll give you an example in Miami. We, as you know, in the 1980s, during the Miami Vice years, we were one of the murder capitals of America. Okay, I brought in a technology called ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is a gunfire detection system. Right. I was one of the first mayors in America to adopt that. Our homicide rate right now is the lowest per capita last year since 1964. Okay. And this year we're 35% below last year's number. We're the only city in America that has those kind of reduction in homicide numbers. We also have the lowest unemployment in America and we're the highest in wage growth. So when you talk about inflation, it's important 
in the, you're seeing inflation on the cost side, but you're also seeing wage growth on the income side. So that is important to offset that. Okay. So the debate, <laughs> you are currently raffling off tickets to see Lionel Messi front row for $1 donation on Venmo. Are you following the required FEC laws to collect information, necessary donor information on that? Or how are you doing that through Venmo? So obviously we, we, you know, anything that we do on the campaign side, we always get uh, legal advice, right? And we talk to FEC and and campaign election lawyers. Uh, And what we're doing is we're actually giving away um, two tickets uh, to the front row, and we're asking people to donate. I think a dollar. You with my husband, by the way, Raf, like donate. <laughs> and by the way, it's 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 Venmo at Suarez twenty twenty four. I've got to throw it in. There. If you want to see me on the debate stage, you've got to donate a dollar to FrancisSuarez.com. You know, this is a new requirement um, for uh, Republican candidates. I think actually Democrats have a, a larger threshold, but I think it's sixty thousand unique donors. I let me tell you what I like about it. I like the fact that candidates are required to get small donations. I like that because, as you know, being around politics for a while, everything in politics in terms of fundraising was these uh, ballroom, high dollar, round table fundraisers where the media is not allowed and nobody knows what's going on. And, and frankly, oftentimes is when candidates make some of the biggest mistakes because people are recording them and they think they're off the record and they say things that maybe are more indicative of how they really feel and it ends up being a problem. Are you speaking uh, about I, something in San Francisco? <laughs> I'm not speaking about anything about anything. There, there was something I remember. <laughs> I'm not speaking about anybody. I'm just talking about, I'm talking about this new world that we live in, which I think is great. And by the way, the other thing is that everywhere you go, you have some way to involve people in the campaign. And it's at a very low threshold. By the way, you're not even necessarily telling them to endorse you or vote for you per se at this moment. What you're saying is, look, Give me an opportunity to have volume. Give me an opportunity. What you're giving me right now, Johanna, is an opportunity to have volume. You ha- you're giving me an opportunity to talk to the people that listen to you. And that volume hopefully inspires and motivates people. Hopefully people say at the end of this, wow, well, that guy's reasonable. We like this guy. He-, he seems like he'd make a good president. He made a great case for why he's qualified. He has a great vision for the country. He has a great track record. We want to hear more from him. We, and, and the only way to do that is to get me on the debate stage, right? Uh, because that's where millions of people will be tuned in. And that's the greatest contrast, right? Because you are literally standing next to each other, you know, standing up, and you are an- <laughs> answering questions. So do you want to see Donald Trump debate? I um, will say this. I can understand why. Like, if I was winning by 30 points, right, I can understand the strategy of him not debating. Okay, I understand it. I get it. And, you know, because he's going to, if he debated on August 23rd, he's going to, you know, probably face incoming from three, four, five, who knows how many candidates, right? Um, so I understand the strategy. Um, I do think that if one of the candidates emerges, gets enough volume, and becomes what he considers to be a legitimate threat, I promise you he mm. will be debating. So you think by the Reagan Library... September, by the Reagan Library debate, maybe, in September. It all depends on how people perform on the August 23rd debate. If he doesn't go, he may go. He may go. Uh, I don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to be shamed into going. You know, like he, that's not going to motivate him. He's going to go if he thinks it's in his best interest. And he's not going to go if he thinks it's in his best interest, right? Uh, And I think we, my job is to get the volume 
you know, necessary uh, to be in that national conversation at a higher level. And that's what I'm that's what I'm focused on in terms of the debate. Well, and Vivek Ramaswamy has already made the debate. He is of our generation, a little younger, actually, and has no political experience. What do you make of the enthusiasm that has been relatively recent in the polls for him? I'm not really surprised uh, in the sense that, you know, he's independently wealthy. Uh, I was reading something today that he has a net worth of close to 700 million. So he has the ability to fly. He has the ability to set up rallies. He started a lot earlier. Uh, as you know, being a student of this and, uh, you know, being a part of this, you get better the more events you do. You know, there's a, there's a punching sort of, you get into boxing shape, if you will, right? As, as you do more and more and more. And you can see that evolution in him. I've seen some interviews at the beginning where he wasn't as sharp. I've seen now where he's getting sharper. And I think the key is, for me, I have to stay true to myself. You know, and, and to me, that means that there are things that I'm not going to be willing to say just to get attention and just to get volume. It's just not who I am. What's an example? Oh, there's all, all kinds of things. I mean, I just don't, outrageous things. I'm not going to say something that's outrageous or something that I don't think is really executable. Right. For example, I, I think it is executable and I do think it's a good proposal to say that we should have a balanced budget amendment to the constitution. I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because every single municipality, every single state government has a balanced budget in their constitution, right? Do I think that's easy to do? Absolutely not. Of course not. I do think there should be exceptions, right? For pandemics, there should be exceptions for war. There should be exceptions for financial shocks, right? But I do think that our government should balance its budget every single year. That should be a prerogative of the government. Um, and so that's that's something that I think is bold, but I don't think it's sort of like something that I know is not doable, right? Or, or, or that it's beyond like saying something rhetorical that is just not going to happen. So one thing, though, you were working mayor, and I don't think a lot of Americans understand, like, there are a lot of working legislatures. So in Virginia, yeah. people have jobs and they're a legislator. In Tennessee, they have jobs and they're a legislator. That can Correct. create conflicts of interest. There was a Miami story about you had a consulting gig with, uh, or a, a legal gig with a company that was about $170,000 uh, contract at the same time that the company was seeking permission for building in the city. Do you think there should be guardrails for where there are working relationships and what guardrails did you yourself apply when you were in this role? Well, first of all, of course, there should be guardrails and there's disclosure requirements when there's a conflict. In this particular case, uh, this particular entity had one property in the city, had multiple properties outside of the city, um, and they happened to be going through the normal course. I was not involved in the process. The reason why the Miami Herald wrote about it was because there were some internal company memos where the principal seemed to be representing that he was working with me when, when he was not. And so that's what happened. And that's what created sort of all this smoke. Look, you know, I do think there should be guardrails. I do think we should be transparent. I do think you need to be extremely careful. Um, I've been a public working uh, official, like you said, for 13 years. I've never had an issue. It just so happens that now I'm running for president and all this sort of happens. And you can understand that. Um, I'll give you some numbers just to give you a perspective. Uh, I, I um, decided to run for president. And since May 5th, which was Formula One in Miami, to today, the Miami Herald has written 40 articles about me. 
okay, in two months. That's almost an article a day. Hey, it's oxygen. In the pres- You're, it's oxygen if you use it. Not really in my local paper. They don't have, don't, not, not too many people read them, so it's not that much oxygen. I know you've been more than generous with your time. Yeah. The last question I have is you are raffling off college tuition, free college tuition also for a dollar, correct? No, incorrect. So there is a there is a uh, a, a political action committee ah. that uh, right. So no, we cannot as a campaign cannot coordinate. We cannot be involved in those kinds of so things. So there is an uh, outside that, group affiliated in supporting you that's raffling correct. off. Free I think that's a more accurate tuition. way of saying it. That's right. I think that's a more accurate way. Of Do saying you it. think college tuition should be free for all? Well, I'm actually the only candidate that has actually gone out there and raised money in the private sector to create scholarships. So um, one of the things I did, which I'm very proud of, is for all Pell Grant recipients in my city who are first in their family to go to college, I actually went out in the private sector. I raised the money so that they could go to school for free. Then uh, for Pell Grant recipients who wanted to get a STEM degree, because STEM education is so important. And like I said, it's going to define the jobs of tomorrow. Again, I went out to the private sector and I raised the money so that all Pell Grant recipients in my city that want to get a STEM degree could go to school for free to four participating uh, universities in my area. So I do think there's a role as a leader to try to promote uh, educational opportunities at low to no cost if you can do it the right way. I don't think you should waive student debt. Uh, I I think that's a disrespect to people um, who didn't go to college and who are now paying for it as taxpayers. I try to tell people, just don't take out debt on your brain. I took out debt when I went to law school. I had law school debt. And I do believe that the greatest investment you can make is in yourself. So if you have to borrow money to invest in your future and 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 you can get it at a low cost, you know, that may be a good investment for you. Uh, I did it. Uh, I was blessed. Uh, I'm still paying off my college, you know, thing, but I've been in a position where I can pay it. Uh, And it's not an issue for me. What do you make of the third party bid? Any chance Joe Manchin, if he's on a third party ticket or a Democrat and a Republican unity ticket could actually win in this country? I don't think so. Um, I think it's more of a spoiler type of situation. So I think my guess is, and I haven't spoken to any of these organizations, but my guess is that that's what they're concerned about. They don't necessarily want to be a spoiler. They would want to be a legitimate candidacy. And I think the other issue is whoever does that is it's hard to come back, right? Like into the partisan world, if you leave the partisan world to try to do that. So it's a big risk for whoever does that. Maybe someone that's in a point in their life where they can, they can do that might want to do that. I don't know. Thank you, Johanna. Yep. Good to join. I'm really grateful to Mayor Suarez for joining. I know another mayor who was running in 2020, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And at the time, I remember David Axelrod telling me, watch out for Mayor Pete. Mayors do bring a different perspective. And Mayor Suarez does have that. It'll be interesting to see whether he makes the debate stage. If you're enjoying this podcast, hit follow. Review us on your podcast platform and find me on social media at Johanna Masca. I am always interested in your take. Let me know what you want to hear next on Press Advanced.